This is Downtown the Podcast. Hello, Rich Kimball with Carrie Haskell from our Zone Radio studios on Broadway in Bangor. Downtown the Podcast, an offshoot of our downtown radio show that airs weekday afternoons from 4 to 6 Eastern Time on WZON and WKIT HD3. You can find streaming audio on our website, downtownwithrichkimball.com, and you can also download the WZON app. Downtown, the podcast is brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength, and by Nice Brewing Company, German-style beer from the woods of Maine. On this week's edition of the podcast, uh, a couple of different ends of the cultural spectrum. We'll talk with music legend Judy Collins about her remarkable career that continues strong with upcoming appearances in Maine, a, a tour that's included Stephen Stills, a fairly new album recorded with Stephen Stills as well. But we begin things by talking about uh, one of the epic comedy films of the early 1980s and the forces behind it, including a group of folks that really changed the face of comedy with their work on The National Lampoon, uh, Saturday Night Live, Second City, and epic films like Animal House and Caddyshack. Chris Nashawati is the film critic for Entertainment Weekly and the author of a terrific new book entitled Caddyshack, The Making of a Hollywood Cinderella Story. Obviously, this was a, a labor of love for you. You put in quite a bit of time putting this all together and gathering up these interviews for uh, close to 20 years, right? Yeah, I mean, off and on, I've been sort of talking to a lot of these people, uh, you know, with my day job at Entertainment Weekly. So, uh, you know, I'll always fit in a question here or there about one of my favorite movies. And, uh, yeah, I, I really, uh, it, it was a lot of work, but when you're writing about Caddyshack, it somehow doesn't feel like work. Well, and I love the story uh, in the uh, in the acknowledgments to the book about uh, when you were working on the piece for Sports Illustrated that was the basis for the book and, and waiting for that one missing puzzle piece, as you explained it, and uh, how excited it must have been to finally get that call from the elusive Bill Murray. Yeah, I mean, Bill Murray is sort of the holy grail, you know, the white whale of the whole thing. He um, He's tough to pin down. He's a quirky guy, and uh, he doesn't have any of the usual sort of publicity machinery that most Hollywood actors or celebrities have. You know, he doesn't have a publicist or a, uh, a manager or an agent. He just sort of is a freewheeling operator. And uh, what he does have is a 1-800 number. Um, which is sort of tough to get your hands on, but once you get it, uh, you leave Bill a message. And there isn't an outgoing message, it's just a beep, and uh, you make your case about why he should call you back. And uh, I, for every day for about a month, uh, left messages telling him what I was working on, and and fortunately, uh, at the last minute, he gave me a call, which was sort of, uh, I I couldn't believe it was happening until it was all over. Well, it was wonderful reading about the making of the the film, but I enjoyed the early parts of the book just as much. And that was the backstory, the coming together uh, of the Harvard Lampoon, the National Lampoon people, the folks from Second City, and, and those who had gone on to Saturday Night Live, and, and how all the members of that group changed the face of comedy in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, I mean, you really can't talk about Caddyshack without talking about this comedy revolution that was happening in the 70s. So the book is really, uh, you know, it is very heavy on Caddyshack, but, but it takes, takes, you know, 100 pages to get there because I really think that it's important to understand uh, the roots of, of where all of these comedians were coming from. Uh, I, I think it covers really a decade in comedy between 1970 and 1980 when everything was changing. 
um, you mentioned, Second City, Saturday Night Live, The National Lampoon. This was a new generation, sort of a counterculture generation uh, of satirists who... um, were really a little bit more um, wielded a, a sharper knife than, than, than most comedians at the time. And, uh, you know, their comedy, you could argue, is, it was the most influential generation of comedy uh, that Hollywood ever produced. And for all the big names involved in the making of Caddyshack, uh, for me, and I, and I feel it may be for you as well, the central figure in all of this is a guy that, that unfortunately not as many people know today, and that's the uh, amazingly talented Doug Kenny. Yeah, Doug Kenny is, is really sort of the, the through line of the book just because he was involved in so many aspects of this decade of comedy. You know, for those who don't know him, um, you know, he, he was, everyone I talked to would say he was the smartest, the funniest, the most charming guy of their generation. Uh, and these are some, you know, he was running in good company, so that's saying a lot. Um, you know, he, he was an editor at the Harvard Lampoon. He was the founder of the National Lampoon. Um, he wrote Animal House. Uh, he wrote and produced Caddyshack, and, uh, you know, he just, everything he touched comedy. in some way we sort of turned to gold. He was a real uh, wildly Saturday talented Live, guy, but also City, a deeply troubled guy, and uh, it, was a, it was a time when uh, his peers of his generation, people like Belushi and, and Chevy Chase and, and a lot of other people, you know, really talk about getting uh, swept up in, in the drug culture, and especially cocaine, and, and that would eventually be Doug's undoing, and he, not give anything away. I mean, it's public record, but he passed away shortly after the movie opened, um, thinking that it was a failure, and he never got to live long enough to see that, you know, people are still talking about and quoting Caddyshack nearly 40 years later. I feel like, too, throughout the making of this movie, there are these uh, dichotomous pairs of folks involved in the production, and and two of them would be Doug Kenny and Harold Ramis, a producer, director, who uh, shared shared a comedic sensibility, but but little else. Yeah, I mean, they couldn't be more different as people, which makes them perfect partners in a way. Uh, You know, Kenny was sort of, uh, you know, the class clown in the back of the room lobbing spitballs as a teacher and and sort of acting up. Brilliant, but but just sort of a real troublemaker. Um, and, and Ramus was more sort of cerebral. Uh, you know, he uh, he worked on Second City uh, Television, which was you know sort of the Canadian counterpart to Saturday Night Live. You know, it was a little bit uh, more benign, less less hard hitting, um, but a brilliant guy. And together, they really uh, it was it was it was a great uh, sort of chemistry they had together. Um, you know, you really don't have to go any further than looking at a movie like Animal House, which they which they wrote together. Um, you know, that movie was made for two million dollars and ended up grossing something like a hundred and forty million dollars. It was the top grossing comedy of all time when it came out. Uh, you know, and, and it's still a great movie. Those guys really um, had a sense of what the baby boomers wanted to see on the big screen and they tapped into it before anyone else did. We're talking with Chris Nashawati about his book Caddyshack, The Making of a Hollywood Cinderella Story. Uh, the people at Orion, uh, the studio behind the film, had a real hands-off approach, but they did want, they wanted some names, they wanted some star power, and uh, they turned to uh, a couple of guys who were doing very well at the time, Rodney Dangerfield, who had just impressed everybody, as you point out in the book, with a, a series of great appearances with Carson on The Tonight Show, and then a Ted Knight fresh off the success on the Mary Tyler Moore Show, but those two also could not have been more different in their approach to things. 
Yeah, I mean, it's sort of a, this movie. This movie it does have, We're like you mentioned, sort of a lot, lots of pairs of opposites. Uh, Dangerfield and Knight uh, couldn't have been more different. You know, Rodney for Rodney, this was Stills, Caddyshack was his first real acting experience, and he had no idea uh, what he was doing at all. And um, you know, he didn't even know what the word action meant. And and Ted Knight, of course, was you know professionally trained actor. Um, you know, hit to him, acting was about learning the lines, coming to the set prepared, maybe 15 minutes early, uh, and saying your lines down to every period, comma, and, and, and exclamation point. Um, you know, so in a scene that they have together, many scenes they have together, Rodney was just spouting off whatever would pop into his mind, even if it wasn't in the script, usually if it wasn't in the script. And meanwhile, Ted Knight is like trying to keep up with him and is not used to this sort of comedy. Uh, and he was just growing growing more and more enraged as the scenes went on. So a lot of the anger and rage that you see in the, his Judge Smales character, that is not acting at all. That is that is the real deal. And Ted Knight uh, didn't do drugs, didn't drink, and I think the first scene, the arrival of Dangerfield on set, uh, as you mentioned in the book, he, he sees someone, I think, at the, at the hotel and says, is that weed? I love weed. Where are we going? Yeah, yeah, no, it's uh, they were yeah, that another another comparison is that Ted Knight was probably you know, someone jokes in the book and I'm not sure it's much of a joke that Ted Knight was the only person on the movie who wasn't high. Um and you know, he just was of a different generation. Um, you know, this was 1979 in Florida, which was pretty much the gateway into the country for cocaine. Uh, and these were young people who had a lot of money to spend, a blank check from the studio, very little oversight, not a ton of experience. So, you know, they partied really hard on this movie. And when you hear some of the epic partying stories that are in the book, it's sort of amazing that uh, a movie came out of this at all. Well, uh, yeah, especially when uh, they turned in the first draft. And uh, as you write, it was, uh, what, a couple of hundred pages long, the initial treatment, and surprisingly didn't include the character of Carl Spackler. Yeah, a normal Hollywood script is usually about 120 pages, and if it's a comedy, it's a little bit shorter. Uh, this one, uh, you know, I think one of the producers compared it to uh, having Moby Dick plopped on their desk, <laughs> uh, or War and Peace, or... Uh, you know, something like that. It, it was just, uh, they didn't know what to make of it. And and these this guys just didn't know what they were really doing. Um, it, they had to cut Arch a lot Campbell of it out. And and what they ended up doing, as you mentioned, Carl Spackler, Bill Murray's sort of demented assistant greenskeeper character, is nowhere in the first draft of the script, or the second or the third. Um, he was largely invented by Bill Murray on the set. Bill Murray was only there a week, and he didn't have any lines written for him. He just made up that whole character out of whole cloth. Uh, and that just shows you what a great ad-libber he was at the time. You know, uh, Ramis was, was the director of the movie, was, was trained at Second City. He had total faith in his performers that they could come up with something better uh, on the day than anything they could possibly write. So, you know, why not just turn on the camera and see what happened? And what happened was something like Cinderella's story. Uh, it's, it's just sort of a remarkable thing that, you know, would never happen in Hollywood today. They would never take that kind of risk. Well, and were you surprised to learn from interviewing people that uh, the script pretty much got thrown out early on? There was so much improvisation, and even the centerpiece of the movie shifted from being about the caddies to being about these larger-than-life figures. Yeah, the whole script was really based 
on one of the three writers, Ramus, Doug Kenny. The, the third the one was Brian Doyle Murray, Bill's older brother. Lewison, and the story was really based on the Murray's youth experiences. There were nine Murray kids. They grew up just north of Chicago, a middle-class family. So in order to pay their way through Jesuit school, they worked as caddies over the summer, you know, all through their teenage years. And they had great stories about the the people that they caddied for and their fellow caddies. And, and so all of those stories found their way into the, the script. Um, but, you know, having so many great improvisers like Murray and Chase and Dangerfield on the set, the script quickly fell into the trash. So the, the original idea was that it was going to be uh, Michael O'Keefe's Danny Noonan character and his Irish girlfriend and one of the other caddies as sort of a love triangle. And all the characters that we think of as famously being the stars of the movie now were really just incidental side characters who would pop up here and there. But they were so much funnier in the dailies that they said, let's get rid of this love triangle story and just follow these funny people and just sort of throw the script in the trash and and just make it up as we go and and we'll see what happens when we get to the editing room. And Bill Murray's character of Carl was actually uh, an offshoot of a character he had done earlier back in the Second City days, the honker, right? Yeah, that was that was one of Bill's uh, most famous characters at Second City in Chicago, the honker. Uh, he would just sort of twist his mouth up into that, you know, crazy uh, grin and uh, and just give this mush mouth delivery. And you couldn't quite tell if the character was drunk or maybe brain damaged or what, uh, or maybe both. Who knows? Um, and, and that was just a character that he played all the time. So people who knew Bill and knew his work at Second City and at Saturday Night Live. They knew what who this character was. You know, it was something he would trot out at parties and all that. Um, but they didn't know that he was going to play the character that way until he arrived on the set, and the camera started rolling for his first scene, which was the Dalai Lama scene. And uh, he just opened his mouth and did Carl as the honker, and everyone just had to bite their fists in order not to crack up and ruin the take. I love the story uh, that you share in the book as well. Uh, fairly late in the process of making the movie, they realized... They haven't had a scene with Murray and Chase together, and there had been I mean, not just animosity, but a, a full-on fight backstage at Saturday Night Live. How did they get them, them together, and did that sort of change their relationship? It did, yeah. Uh, you know, Bill Murray and Chevy Chase uh, were not friends at all uh, coming into this movie. Um, you know, Chevy was the breakout star on the first season of Saturday Night Live and, uh, before he went off to have a Hollywood career. Uh, Bill Murray was his replacement on the show. And for those who were left behind, when Chevy left, there was this sense that Chevy had sort of gotten a big ego. And so when he came back to guest host in 1978, Bill Murray, as the new guy, sort of felt it was his job to be the Avenger a little bit. And so backstage before the monologue, he and Chevy got into a fist fight. Um, And so when the two of them two years later arrived, or about a year and a half later, arrived on the set of Caddyshack in Florida, everyone was walking on eggshells. They did not know how these two were going to interact. But of course, it wasn't a huge problem because they didn't have any scenes together in the film. It wasn't until the studio saw how good that Bill Murray was and how good Chevy Chase was, they said, you know, we've got a huge wasted opportunity here. We need to have a scene with these two guys together. So that's how the whole scene of, of Carl Shack and the whole pool or the pond thing <laughs> came up. It's very interesting, too, that uh, they had to reach back a little bit into old Hollywood to try and, and save this thing when they were attempting to edit it into something manageable in the post-production process. 
Yeah, you know, they went through a number of editors, and um, it, it's it's uh, it's sort of a miracle. The first cut of this movie, the rough cut of this movie, was four and a half hours long. Uh, they had a lot of work to do, and it, it didn't help that they were smoking a lot of pot in the editing room. Uh, you know, when you're when you're that high, everything seems really funny and and not something you want to cut. Um, so they had a lot of trouble with that. So uh, you know, they they called in a series of different editors um, to, to to get the movie into manageable shape. It was still a bit of a mess. So the idea that they came up with, and it's not one that Ramis or Kenny liked, but the producer John Peters came up with the idea, was they had shot one scene with the Gopher, uh, just just one scene with Bill Murray and the Gopher. And so he said, why don't we go back to the studio, get some more money, reshoot more scenes of the Gopher, and just have those scenes be the connective tissue to all these great gags we have. So you could argue, I know some people don't like the Gopher, but you could argue that the Gopher is the thing that saved the movie. An amiable mess, as uh, it was called early on. Now, all these years later, and you point this out in, in the book, there are there are elements of the movie that, that are a bit uncomfortable to watch today in light of uh, the Me Too experience uh, that's going on in Hollywood right now. But how does Caddyshack stand the test of time from your perspective? Well, it's like a lot of movies from, from that era. You know, it's... It's still a very funny film, but it's also a bit of a problematic movie that, you know, I think you have to try to watch uh, as much as you can uh, through the glasses of, of the era. Um, you know, it's, it's they're obviously the character Lacey Underall, um, you know, is actually a pretty empowered female character in the movie. Uh, but, you know, the actress Cindy Morgan in the book, you know, describes some, some uh, encounters that were, you know, less than... Uh, politically correct, let's mm. say. Uh, you know, she was really put through the ringer uh, in terms of the amount of nudity she was doing, the circumstances on which she did the nudity, uh, being threatened uh, to be fired if she didn't do things the certain way that they wanted them done. Uh, so, you know, I think it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a movie that, unfortunately, is like so many other movies of its era. Chris, did you find that the people uh, who were in this film, those responsible uh, for making it, uh, they were they were happy to have the chance to talk about this, even though perhaps some of the memories were a bit clouded? Uh, yeah, you know, the thing is, is that, you know, I, I, I think a lot of people might dismiss Caddyshack as uh, sort of a silly, lightweight movie. You know, Bill Murray has gone on to be nominated for Oscars. Harold Ramis went on to direct a profound movie like Groundhog Day. You know, I mean, like, you know, these are people who had careers that that produced more serious maybe more reputable movies than Caddyshack but I found that all of them really enjoyed the chance to talk about it because it was such an important movie at the beginning of their careers and it was really an era when they were having a lot of fun um, you know acting is a business and there was this was a time when everything was new to them and they really um, it had an exciting uh, air about it. And also, you know, they were also free and easy with the anecdotes about some of the racier stuff because it's been nearly 40 <laughs> years and the statute of limitations on most of the stuff has, has elapsed. So, uh, you know, they were pretty honest about it. So it was, it was fun to talk to them. That's Chris Nashawadi, the author of Caddyshack, the making of a Hollywood Cinderella story here on Downtown, the podcast. When we come back, we talk with a music legend, 
Judy Collins coming up next after this word from Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Five years ago, two friends teamed up to create balanced beers that pay respect to the rich German tradition of brewing, layered with the nuance and eccentricity of modern brewing. And with that, Nice Brewing Company was born. Based in Limerick, Maine, in the foothills of the White Mountains, Dustin and Tim combine a love of beer, science, and their German heritage for truly unique brews. Whether it's the Nice Weiss, the Sun and Shine, IPAs, Stouts, Porters, or any of the seasonal offerings, you'll love what they've got brewing at Nice. Work hard, play hard, be nice. German-style beer from the woods of Maine. We're back on Downtown, the podcast. A little sampling here from the recent collaboration between Stephen Stills and our next guest, Judy Collins. This is Everybody Knows. Everybody knows that the dice are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows that the war is over. Everybody knows that the good guys lost. Judy Collins will have uh, two main concert appearances coming up here in the month of July. On the 13th at the Criterion Theater in Bar Harbor and the 14th at Aura in Portland. We had a chance to talk about her career and her recent collaboration with Stephen Stills. Here's Judy Collins on Downtown, the podcast. You've been doing a lot of touring lately uh, with old friend Stephen Stills. And of course, you collaborated with him on the album, Everybody Knows It. What's that experience been like getting back together musically after all these years? Well, it's been wonderful. It's been a long time in coming. We've never done anything like it. But now we're in our second year of touring, and we think we really earned it. After all these years, it's a lot of fun. And and I I saw the conversation you two had on on CBS Sunday Morning, which was just wonderful. And uh, he talked about you two being the perfect partners musically. And uh, you've been able to find something in music that didn't work out for you on the personal front those many years ago. Yes, I think it was always meant that we'd be doing music instead of the other thing. And uh, we know, because we've both been through the fire and brimstone of being... uh, artists on the road with big careers, doing, having relationships with other people and uh, professionally and personally. So we've learned a lot, and I always say it's a little like couples therapy, a little late, but it worked <laughs> very well. Now, is the story true that the Sweet Judy Blue Eyes was his attempt to win you back? Oh, yes, it was. Well, he said he would have done anything. I now know that he's finally confessed that all of those songs really were about me, <laughs> helplessly hoping and and uh, the, all the others. Uh, you don't need to cry and you don't have to cry. Oh, you know, they were all written for me and it was a it was a grand finale to a wonderful love affair. Well, you've done pretty well in the love affair you're in now. Over 22 years of marriage, you've been with your husband for more than 40 years. That, that's not exactly the rock and roll lifestyle. No, it isn't, and it sure does work for me. <laughs> well, we're very glad to hear that. Uh, what what keeps the energy going for you? What gives you the desire to continue uh, to be out there touring and, and making new music? 
I always feel I always I always want to be an artist. I always want to be better. I always want to write a new song. I always want to write a new poem, a new book. And I've just put out. Uh, it's coming out on the sixth or the seventh of this month. Uh, I have a song about the dreamers called the dreamers. And that's coming out with this video, and it has, of course, a political slant as well as a personal and social one. And, you know, it was uh, it's the result of just keeping my hand in and doing new songs and keeping writing every day. That's what I have to do. Well, I'm so glad to hear that, because I wanted to ask you why it, it seems, from my perspective anyway, that music doesn't play quite the same role today in activism that it did in the 60s and early 70s. Well, each time is different, and I don't think there's any question that it has to be a good song or a certain kind of song to break through. We don't have the radio play that we used to have. Um, we are, if you go to, if you go to um, festivals and if you get online to new music, you'll find that a lot of music that's being written today is reminiscent and how always has been, because what we were doing in the 60s was writing about life. And that's what we're still doing. Hey, Judy, this is Bruce Pratt. I, I wanted to ask you this question after I heard you on NPR talk, tell the story of being the snowed-in song story. Um, I was sitting backstage with people you knew after we'd all played a gig about 30 years ago. Eric Von Schmidt, Dave Van Ronk, Ramblin' Jack Elliott, Paul Jeremiah, and myself. And Dave said, you know, I always thought it would last forever. It would keep rolling in. Everything would always work. Some of you made it work and others didn't. What were the great choices you made that's allowed you to sustain this brilliant career that you've had for so long now? Well, I was lucky because in the beginning of my life, for the first 18, 15, 16, 17, 18 years, I was trained. I was trained as a pianist, first of all, a musician, a singer, a participant. I learned how to do what is required, which is to show up for all the shows, to do all the press, to do all the meet and greets, to go out and shake hands with the public, because my father was a performer and a great pianist and singer and entertainer. So I, I got to learn all of that, and the mechanics of it are what still work. And uh, the discipline of having to practice every day is still with me. And so I've had a lot of good good fortune is a lot of learning in terms of health and i've learned not to do things i don't drink i don't smoke i don't eat crap i i i live the life of an athlete but that comes over time and you learn to let go of the things that don't work so you clear the path in a way so that your early training and all the inspiration that you get today can actually come to fruition but that's what every artist has to learn also, I know, I was talking to Jack Holzman the other day. Jack is president, was president of Electra. He's still working for Warners at 87 years old. <laughs> and he's a brilliant man. And he used to t dr drag us over across to Brooklyn and so forth in the Bronx to meet with the distributors and to do all the things that you have to do everything. I mean, that's the truth. It doesn't matter if you're living in the digital age or... The, the age that we were living in, which was the analog age, you have to do everything. And, of course, it's a pain It's a pain in the ass sometimes, but, you know, so is being a rancher and having to go out in a snowstorm and give, help a, 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 
a, um, a horse give birth to a colt. It's all about showing up. We're talking with Judy Collins here on downtown. I heard a conversation Paul McCartney had recently, and someone asked him about retirement, and he said, retire from what? I mean, it's, yeah. it's, certainly it's work, but, but if you're an artist, um, you, you do what you do for as long as you can do it, right? That's right. Whether you write or paint or sing or design jewelry or whatever it is, you're always going to be working. You've always had a, such a skill, not, not only at, at writing your own songs, but finding wonderful songs that others wrote that you could turn into your own and make them so very personal. Is, is that something that you learned along the way? Sure. I learned it from my dad. He, he always picked the great songs. He'd get all the shows, you know, on these great big uh, vinyl records. And that you'd, if you sat on them, they'd, um, they'd break into 55 pieces. <laughs> But he always chose the best songs, and he taught me how to do that. I don't know. I can't explain it because it has to do with the fact that you fall in love with a song. But you do know what to fall in love with after the same time. It's like, you know, uh, when you don't fall in love with the right guy, you learn pretty quickly what not to do. And the same thing is true with music. You do find the things that work for you. I just started singing a couple of new songs that are brand new to me. I'm singing uh, uh, The Highwayman, which seems like an odd turn, but it's about reincarnation, which Mm -hmm. always interested me. Our friend Jimmy Webb, one of his great songs. I love everything he ever did. Uh, One of the things you've also been really noted for is being able to, to use your incredible vocal powers to really enhance some songs. And I was thinking the other day about who knows where the time goes? Your version of that and Sandy Denny's version, who I love, among are just so much better than anyone else I ever heard do that. How does how does the song find its way into you that that you then know it's the right song? Well, you fall in love with it, and then you know you can do it. You have to do it. I had to do Who Knows Where the Time Goes. We're still doing it in our show, Stephen and I. We were recording that in 1968, and I've done it. I've I would imagine that I've done it probably in half the shows that I've done in the past 59 years, which is a long time. Judy Collins appearing in Bar Harbor at the Criterion Theater on July 13th and at Aura in Portland on July 14th. Judy, it's a wonderful treat for us to talk with you. Thank you so much for making time for us today. Thank you. And by the way, I'm coming with with Ari Hest, who's going to open for me, with whom I got a Grammy nomination last year, so... It's going to be fun. That is the legendary Judy Collins here on Downtown the Podcast as we wrap it up. Thanks to Judy and also Chris Nashawati from Entertainment Weekly, author of the new book, Caddyshack, The Making of a Hollywood Cinderella Story. We remind you, the podcast is brought to you by Nice Brewing Company, German-style beer from the woods of Maine, and by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. For Carrie Haskell, I'm Rich Kimball. We'll see you next time on Downtown the Podcast.